Our second Bible reading this morning is Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, printed on page 11. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do leave your service program open so we can keep looking at that passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. The writer of Psalm 119 says to God, The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Father God, please give us that same way of thinking about your word. Open our eyes to its riches. For Jesus' sake, amen. Many people's favorite Bible passage is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about two sons and their father. One of the sons, the younger one, asks the father to give him his share of the inheritance in advance. Essentially, he's saying to his father, you're taking too long to die. So can we pretend you're dead already? So I can have the only thing you're good for in my eyes, which is money. It's a chilling request, but with amazing gentleness and meekness, the father agrees to it. And the son then goes off to a faraway town where he races through the inheritance money until there's nothing left. When a famine strikes that region, the son trudges home, planning to offer his services to his father as a hired hand. But the father sees him from a distance, runs towards him and throws his arms around him. It's a demonstration of compassion and forgiveness and love. The father in Jesus' parable represents God. And the parable shows how eager God is to receive sinful people like you and me when we come to him. Whether that's an unbeliever coming to him for the very first time or a believer returning to him for the thousandth time, God graciously wraps us up in his loving embrace. But at the end of the story, the other son, the older son, is left out in the cold by his own choice. He refuses to come in to the feast thrown by his father for his lost and found younger son. The older son can't understand his father. He's not willing to live life as his father lives it. That's how the parable 
ends. And it leaves us with the message that there are insiders and outsiders. Jesus doesn't say that all will be well for everybody forever. He calls us to come home to God while there's still time. In today's Bible passage, the prophet Malachi speaks on God's behalf to a group of Israelites who at that time are out in the cold. They're like the younger son while he's still in that far-off city, squandering his inheritance. They're like the oldest son, refusing to come into the feast. And so halfway through verse 7, God tells the people, Return to me, and I will return to you. But the Israelites have a problem. They say at the end of verse 7, How shall we return? They don't know how to go back to God. They've got the message that they're out in the cold, but they don't know how to come in. Whole of the rest of the passage is Malachi's answer to that question. Malachi tells them what it would mean for them to come in from the cold, and he promises them God's rich welcome if they do come in. But to begin with, Malachi explains to them why they're on the outside, where they've gone wrong. Our first heading today, with one more to follow, is Mankind Robbing God. Mankind robbing God. Let's look down, please, to verses 8 and 9. Speaking through Malachi, God says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The Israelites were holding something back from God that was rightfully his. As it says at the end of verse 8, they weren't bringing God the necessary tithes and contributions. The word tithe means a tenth. According to God's law, the Israelites were supposed to bring a tenth of all their crops to the tribe of Levi. Out of Israel's 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe, the temple tribe. All the priests who served at the temple belonged to that one tribe. There were Levites who weren't set apart as priests. And yet even they had special assignments at the temple that the other 11 tribes didn't have. But if you're serving at the temple, you can't cultivate crops in the usual way, which is why it was so important for the Israelites to tithe by giving a tenth of their crops to the Levites. The Israelites made it possible for that temple tribe to keep serving at the house of God. Tithing sustained the Levites and the Levites sustained the worship of God at the temple. What's more, according to Deuteronomy chapter 14, the Levites were supposed to feed orphans and widows and destitute foreigners out of what they received from the other tribes. So if the Israelites weren't tithing, the poor and helpless people of the land would be left unfed and hungry. Tithing was integral to Israel's setup, integral to its religion and its care for the poor. But in Malachi's day, the Israelites were not tithing as they should have been. Malachi also mentions contributions at the end of verse 8 in the law of Moses. There were different kinds of animal sacrifice. Sometimes the 
whole animal would be burnt up, that sometimes most of the sacrificed animal would be cooked and eaten. And when that happened, a choice portion would go to the priests. If you're thinking, that sounds like a lot of protein, what about carbs? You'll be glad to hear that the Israelites were also supposed to bring various baked items with their sacrificial offerings. Bread made with yeast, bread made without yeast, wafers spread with oil, and cakes of fine flour. They sound particularly good. But the Israelites weren't fulfilling their obligations. So all those tasty things, the prime cuts of meat and the baked goodies, weren't getting to the priests. And so in verse 8, God says he's being robbed. Because if the priests don't get their share, they'll have to go back to their homes elsewhere in Israel. And God's house will fall into disuse. The worship of God will cease. God himself will be neglected. The Israelites are robbing God of the glory that would otherwise be his because they're depriving the Levites and priests. Now, later in the sermon, we're going to apply this ancient passage to our own 21st century lives, but it, it's worth pausing at this point to notice a principle that's still very meaningful today. God considers himself personally robbed when things in his world aren't as they should be. The idea that God is aloof and withdrawn and not particularly interested in the world is shot down by this passage. God is so invested in what's happening on earth that he says he's robbed when things aren't as they should be. Humanity has been given the task of ruling God's world for him as his representatives, but wherever you look, you can see humans ruling planet earth to benefit ourselves not to glorify God. So we're depriving him of many things that should be his. In brief, we've been given the world by God and we've stolen it from him. Humanity has robbed the creator. When God's son came from heaven, to live among us on earth, he knew this robbery would continue. He knew at the end of his life, even his clothes would be unjustly taken from him. It had to be that way. It was prophesied ahead of time in Psalm 22. He knew he would be robbed of life itself through crucifixion, as prophesied in Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53 says, crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. What kind of God is this? A God who lets himself be robbed so the robbers might go free. Well, that is our God. If you're listening today as someone who hasn't yet come to Jesus for the salvation he offers, Come to him today. You can trust a saviour as loving as Jesus. You can trust him with your whole life. He's the God who responds 
to robbery with blessing. And with that God in view, let's now turn to the second half of the passage, verses 10 through 12. Our second heading is God blessing mankind. God blessing mankind. Judging by verse 10, it seems the Israelites haven't been neglecting their obligations entirely. God tells them to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, which suggests up to that point they have been making a token gesture. That fits with what we've seen earlier in the book of Malachi. You might remember from chapter 1 that the people were bringing offerings, but they were blemished offerings. The animals they brought were the cast-offs. They were diseased or defective in some way. That was the people's general approach to their temple obligations. They gave, but they gave insufficiently and half-heartedly. So God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And then God says, if they obey that command, they'll receive extraordinary blessing. Listen to the rest of verse 10. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. When I was a boy, I used to enjoy a children's story titled The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar by Roald Dahl. Henry Sugar is an Englishman who comes across a doctor's report on an Indian guru who can see through thin objects such as paper, for example. The guru can identify what is on the other side of a playing card while only looking at the back of the playing card. Henry Sugar is a gambling man and instantly recognizes the value of that particular skill. He spends three years mastering the technique outlined in the medical report before putting it to use. At the casino, he brings home armfuls of winnings, and the picture on the cover of the book, which I've never forgotten, shows what happens next. Henry Sugar starts throwing banknotes out of the window of his fourth-floor London apartment, down to the street below. He has so much, he can afford to throw out those banknotes. In that picture on the cover of the book, you can see people flocking to the spot and eagerly reaching up to grab the banknotes as they float down. Now, that's not the end of the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, and I discovered this week that a movie of the story has just been made, starring Benedict Cumberbatch in the title role, so I won't give away any plot spoilers in case you see the movie when it comes out. I just want you to keep that book cover in your mind. Henry Sugar throwing banknotes to the people below. Because verse 10 of our passage today is a Henry Sugar verse. God pledges to the people that if they bring the full tithe into the storehouse, he'll open the windows of heaven and pour down blessings upon them. God then adds some specifics in verse 11. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. It seems pests, perhaps locusts, have been ruining the crops and God says he'll put a stop to that. By the way, it is worth 
noticing in passing the sovereign power of God, he doesn't need to coat the crops with pesticide. He can protect them with just a word of rebuke to an incoming army of locusts. I will rebuke the devourer for you, God says, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. The God of Malachi chapter 3 is the same God we find in a fishing boat on Lake Galilee in the Gospel of Mark, rebuking a storm, flattening waves with just a word. God's blessings will be so great, so abundant if the people bring the full tithe into the storehouse that the nations will sit up and pay attention. God says in verse 12, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. That was how mission seems to have worked in that period of salvation history. The Israelites weren't sent out into all the world as Christian missionaries are today. Instead, Israel was supposed to have such blessedness that the rest of the world would come and honor and worship Israel's God, the one true God. That's Israel's God-given role in the world. And Israel in Malachi's day isn't living up to it. Without the tithing, without the tithing piece of the puzzle in position, the temple can't operate properly and the nations can't get to see what they ought to be able to see. Now, it's easy, I think, to see how this Bible passage could be abused. Someone might summarize the message of this passage by saying you need to earn God's approval through generous tithing and then God will reward you with his blessings. That's how the world thinks religion works. You could call it the divine Santa Claus view of religion. Be good so your name is taken off the naughty list and put onto the good list and then God will give you all that you desire. It's easy to see how someone could take this passage in that wrong direction. But the book of Malachi as a whole won't support that way of reading this passage. Right at the start of the book of Malachi, God declares his love for the Israelites. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. God goes on to say that the Israelites' presence in their land shows how much he loves them. And yet the Israelites have not behaved in a lovable way. If you've been coming to Good Shepherd during this sermon series, you'll know that the Israelites haven't been behaving lovably. Their worship at the temple has dishonored God. They have a terrible problem with divorce. And their men have been marrying non-Israelite women who are still worshiping their foreign gods. The Israelites have not been earning God's love. And yet God continues to declare his always and forever love for them. The warnings of judgment in the book of Malachi are for those Israelites who choose to live a life of unrepentant rebellion against their loving God. To use the language of Jesus' parable, Malachi is warning younger sons in far-off cities 
and older sons refusing to go into the feast. God wants to receive both those groups into his arms, just like the father in the parable. And yet if they choose not to return to him, he won't return to them. But the willingness is there on God's part, the loving willingness, despite their behavior. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you. So the backdrop to this particular passage is God's undeserved love. The promise of Henry Sugar-style blessing, if Israel tithes properly, is a reward for good behavior set within the context of a loving relationship that the Israelites haven't deserved. As my two-year-old son, Solly, gets older, rewards for good behavior may well have a part to play in my and Betsy's parenting. But I certainly hope they will be set against the backdrop of constant love so that Solly never thinks he needs to earn our love through his good behavior. That's how it is between God and Israel, according to Malachi. God promises rich rewards if Israel brings in the full tithe, but he's already made it clear that his love isn't earned by Israel's obedience. Well, let's now turn to our own new covenant period of salvation history to see how Malachi's teaching connects to our lives as Christians. We don't worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. That temple no longer exists. So we have no obligation to sustain the worship at that temple through tithes and contributions. What's more, in our period of salvation history, generally speaking, there isn't the same connection between obedience and material blessings that there used to be under the Old Covenant. And on top of all that, no one has ever found a tithing verse in the New Testament. A lot of people have looked, but there isn't a verse commanding Christians to give a tenth of their earnings to the church. But whenever we read the Bible, we're not just looking for straightforward do's and don'ts. We're seeking to get to know God better. And today's Bible passage shows us God is a God who wants to be worshipped. And so he wants his people to provide everything needed for worshipping him. God is a God who wants to be worshipped. And so he wants his people to provide everything needed for worshipping him. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, God says. Remember, without food in God's house, priests would go hungry and temple worship would grind to a halt. The same is true today under the new covenant. God wants to be worshipped and so he wants his people to provide everything needed for worshipping him. If we want a, a place to worship him without having to squeeze into someone's New York City sitting room or without getting rained on in the park, we'll need to provide money for rent. So we have a meeting place where we can worship God. If we want a pastor with the time to prepare Sermons, among other duties, will need to provide money for a pastor's salary. 
And if we want printed bulletins and refreshments and the right to sing copyright protected songs and a website and so on, we'll need to provide money for all these things so that God can be worshipped. And with that in mind, we naturally ask ourselves, well, how much should an individual or a church family give? What's a ballpark percentage to shoot for? And then we turn in our Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, among other passages, and we find God's people in the Old Testament gave 10%. They gave a tithe. And in this way, the Old Testament tithe becomes a very helpful guideline for us and an inspiration for us. We might even feel a healthy rivalry with those Old Testament believers and say to ourselves, you know, I don't want those guys to out-generous me when it comes to providing everything needed for worship. I want to stand shoulder to shoulder with them or even give more than they gave. Verse 12 reminds us of the link between well-funded worship and outreach to the nations. In Malachi's time, if Israel maintained temple worship, God would pour out blessings in response, making Israel a land of delight. That would then catch the eye of all nations, drawing them to the one true God. In our time, the process is similar. As we generously give our resources, our time, energy, money in the service of Christ, God will use those resources to reap a spiritual harvest with fruitful mission to the world being part of that harvest. Many churches, including our church, Good Shepherd, give a proportion of their income to missionaries spreading the good news elsewhere in the world. Listen again to the extraordinary promise we heard in our first Bible reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It strongly echoes what we've been seeing in Malachi chapter 3. Here's what we heard. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He who supplies seed, that's God, will multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That echoes what we've been hearing from Malachi, doesn't it? Here it is again. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He who supplies seed will multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's the New Testament telling us that in response to our giving, God will pour out blessings on us. Not to satisfy our own greed. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches and it's false teaching. Instead, as we give, God will pour out blessings on us so we can reap a harvest of righteousness. God's outpoured blessings may not be financial blessings. Jesus enriched the world while being poor himself. But whatever form those blessings from God might take. The promise stands, he who supplies seed will multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What a harvest of righteousness came from Christ's 
generosity. It's important to say that Christian giving isn't masochism. It is not self-harm. That's not the Bible's teaching. The Bible teaches that God is so bountiful that he can continue meeting our needs even as we meet, even as we meet the needs of others. There may be some occasions when we give in a way that we find painful, just as Jesus went to the cross knowing how painful it would be for him in many ways in order to give generously to the world. But the biblical norm is that God is so bountiful, he will continue meeting our needs even as we meet the needs of others. That is the biblical norm for giving. Perhaps your heart sinks just a little when you hear all of this discussion about giving, particularly in a time of economic pressure with prices rising very noticeably. If so, fix your eyes on the God of the parable of the prodigal son, the God who welcomes us into his loving arms when we come to him. It's that God, that God, who wants to stir up our generosity, the God who loves us and wants the best for us, wants us to be cheerful givers. It's because he knows it's so good for us to look around at the world with generosity in our hearts. That's how he sees the world. And he knows it's good for us to become like him. Acting generously is part of what it means to come home to God. Our loving God doesn't save people for a life of rebellion against his ways. No, he saves us to live life as he lives it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazingly generous character and nature. You gave us the gift of your Son, and he gave himself for our salvation. We thank you for him. What an indescribable gift. Please, by your Spirit, would you make us cheerful givers. For Jesus' sake, amen.